Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Heavenly Father, we're about to once again open our ears to hear the words of Jesus. You recorded them by your Holy Spirit for us. Not all of them, but lots of them. Help us, Father, to hear these words today as though Jesus himself were still on the earth and and we were there in the day he was and hearing them come from his own lips. Allow them to have the same impact they did when he spoke them. And Father, may our lives be changed and blessed and affected through them. For we ask this now in his name and trust upon the power of his Holy Spirit to enable a true communication to take place today. For this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here we go, one more lesson in our Red Letter Living series, looking at the very words of Jesus, of which they're sprinkled through the New Testament and especially in the Gospels and and in many Bibles are written in red ink. And so they jump right down on us. And as we consider a different passage than we have before today, let me just ask you this. Have you ever noticed in our world today how seldomly those who claim to speak for Jesus actually speak the way Jesus spoke? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever noticed that? That those many who would claim to speak for Jesus... When you listen to what they say and you open up your red letter book, you'd say, that's not the way Jesus spoke at all. They might even say Jesus didn't even say anything like that. You see, never, nowhere in our world today is that more the case. The speaker not sounding very much like Jesus Never is that more the case than in the matter of evangelism. Today's evangelist slash soul winner is part psychologist, part salesman, part negotiator, part entertainer, part prevaricator. How's that for a word? Somebody told me this week, Pastor Mark, you use a lot of words that, you know, I'm not really sure. But that one we haven't used too much. A prevaricator is someone who tells untruths. Simple language, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. And I'm adding that in the list of things that sometimes evangelists and soul winners are. You see, the last thing such a person usually is, is a straightforward proclaimer of the actual words of Jesus. However, that is what we want to be. We want to be straightforward proclaimers of the actual words of Jesus, not words we're putting in his mouth. So today we're going to continue this extended effort to do just that. Proclaim and hopefully explain the actual words of Jesus. Specifically today, words relating to evangelism. Now, most who would speak for Jesus these days emphasize the opportunities the opportunities that Jesus offers to those who put their faith in him. That's where salesmanship comes into play. Selling Jesus is frequently the name of the game. And highlighting all the bells and whistles that come along with salvation is the pitch. Most of those bells and whistles are dealer add-ons. Thank you. Jesus himself, however, 
Jesus emphasized the requirements, not really the opportunities, the good deal it is. Jesus himself emphasized the requirements that he would lay upon anyone who would want to be identified with him. Today's red-letter scripture identifies a three-part requirement. We pretty much sang it just a moment ago. It's indeed a requirement, we would say, like no other. And here's how it reads. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Today's red-letter scripture. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, that means if anyone wants to uh, join the Jesus team, if anyone really wants to be saved, if anyone wants to get involved with the Son of God who came to earth to, to seek and to save that was lost, which was lost, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must. You know, when I was in seminary learning how to preach, I mean, we had a couple of classes on preaching. There were certain things they said, in the modern world, you should never use in a sermon. Certain words. You should never say must. You should never say should. You know, that, that, like it puts people under the gun. Makes people feel like you're telling them they have to do something. When we all know that we free-thinking Americans, we need to be presented with an opportunity and then make up our own mind about it. Maybe tweak it a little bit. Maybe say, I'll take this much, but not that part. Uh, and, and, and usually the person who's trying to get me to be a new number on his chart will say, that's fine, that's fine. Just, just, just give yourself. He'll, you know, he'll work out the details, I guess. Never say must. Never say should. You know, Jesus just never attended any of those classes. So here's what we got. If anyone would come after me, he must. Say that out loud. He must. Doesn't it sound like it's a requirement? You got to. Well, Lord, you don't really mean I have to, do you? Thank you, John. <laughs> Jesus didn't have quite as deep a voice. That was more like God the Father's voice, you know, when he talked to Noah and, and, and those. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Now here's what the list is. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How many of you have ever heard that before? Read that before? Might have it underlined in your Bible, right? We even pretty much sang it word for word in a song. Probably no scripture other than John 3.16 more familiar with that one, especially in any Bible preaching church. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, that verse, that verse comes right before the verse we focused our attention on last week. And this verse that I just read provides the context for the one we focused on last week. This verse contains the requirement, the minimum required, while last week's verse gives some of the rationale or the reason for that requirement. So see, if Jesus were standing right here and if he were holding a contemporary Bible in his hand, which, which he never got to hold in his hand while he was on the earth... If he were holding one of our Bibles divided into chapters and verses... He could say, now verse 25 in this 16th chapter of Matthew, which was last week's verse, explains why verse 24, this week's verse, is absolutely necessary. So, just to catch us up, or to remind us, here was last week's verse, Matthew 26, or 16, 25. Here we go. Whosoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for me, Jesus says, will save it. So we saw last week, thinking our way through that particular two-line verse, that Jesus and our own natural self just cannot both be served in our lives. They are antithetical to each other. 
the natural fallen human nature, what we called last week the self, with its natural inclination toward the twin values of independence and indulgence, that self absolutely hates Jesus. For Jesus and his teachings are a threat to it and to its desires. Jesus came to earth to destroy everything that man's natural, fallen, rebellious nature stands for. Jesus came demonstrating submission and restraint, not independence and indulgence. Those who identify with him will do the same. So naturally, as we saw last week, those who are trying to save their natural, rebellious, self-centered lives will lose them, Jesus said, in the end. For with the end of all things comes the judgment, the judgment meted out by the very God against whom they have rebelled. They will not stand a chance. They will not stand a chance in that judgment. They will be utterly and eternally and sorrowfully condemned. However, if during this earthly life those one of those fallen, independent, indulgent, sinful human beings yields his life to Jesus, Jesus says he will save his life and himself. So last week we heard the rationale. Here was the reason that Jesus gave. Basically, holding on to something that is doomed will result in you being doomed. Letting go of the thing that is doomed to take a hold of the one who is life itself will result in you being saved. That's a good thing. To be saved rather than doomed. That's the reason to do whatever you got to do to get there. Because Jesus says if you try to hang on the life you got going, you're going to lose it eternally. God's going to judge you, we know. But if you yield it, lose it, give it to Jesus Christ and in somehow connect with him, he says you will save yourself you will know eternal life rather than eternal judgment. Now, that's where you want to be. That's what you want to have. That's a reason to almost do anything to get it. So naturally, anyone who has been paying attention to what Jesus was saying should be asking, how do I do that? I certainly want to be saved, not lost. What do I let, how do I let loose of the one thing that will condemn me and take hold of the other thing that will save me? What is required of me? Here's how Jesus answered that question. What is required of me? How do I get to where I am saved? He said, In today's red letter scripture, if anyone would come after me. That is, if anyone would identify with me, with the life I'm offering, with the call that I'm extending. If anybody would link themselves to me. One time he said, take my yoke upon you. Literally, link yourself to me. I'm your savior, your salvation. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Three absolutely required steps. I don't think those three steps are really recorded, really, in any gospel presentation I've seen in the last 40 or 50 years. It's always presented in in a more gentle salesmanship way. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, good, I have some myself. 
I wonder if God's plan is going to match up with my plan. You know, maybe his plan could add a little bit to my plan. I mean, I have a career plan. I have a romantic plan. I have an educational plan. I have all kinds of plans. And now you're telling me that even the God of the universe has a plan that can be added to my life. How good is that? Tell me more about that. See, Jesus started right off the bat looking at a crowd of people who had gotten to know him and heard his teachings and were beginning to want to just walk where he walked and, in a sense, follow him physically. And he's talking about following him in, in every way. And he looks right at them and says, hey, if you want to do this, if you want to do this, here's three things you got to do. you got to deny yourself, whatever that means. you got to take up your cross whatever that means, and I'm going to tell you that an awful lot of people have no idea what that means and the way we've been talked, it's been talked about. And then, then, you can follow me. And what exactly does that entail? Following. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. These three absolutely required steps. If anyone will come after me, first one, Jesus says, let him deny himself. Now, to me, I just want to share with you almost a, not exactly a stream of consciousness, because that would mean that I'm, you know, conscious, but just a stream of thoughts here, actions that we take when we are denying self. All of these things might be part of it. But some of them will seem more familiar to you than others, and we want you to become familiar with what we're talking about. Deny himself. That means, first off, set self aside. Meaning, take self, your own self, off the throne in your life. When you answer the question, who's in charge of me? If your answer is, I am... Self is on the throne. You're running the show. Even if you decide somewhere along the line to throw in your lot with Jesus, it's like because you've decided, you know, there's a place for some of that religious stuff in your life, but you're still, you're going to manage all these different aspects of your life because you're still running your life. After all, it's your life, right? Well, see, if you're going to deny self, you've got to deny that reality. You've got to deny that right. I'm in charge and I'm, I'm kind of weighing the pros and cons of everything that comes along and as well as religious things. Take self off the throne in your life. Forsake a point of view that says whatever I deem best for me is what I'm going to do. You got to just lay that aside. Whatever I decide is best for me, that's what I'm going to do. When it stops being best for me, I'll Trade it in for something else. Adopt a Lord's Prayer attitude that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not only on the earth generally, but in my life. Let my life be determined by the will of God. And I will believe that God will reveal that will to me according to his uh, good pleasure. But I will know he has a will for me and I am yielding myself to it even if I'm just experiencing the results of it and don't really even know what God has specifically in mind for me. Your will, though, be done. Your kingdom come in my life. And then how about this one? If you're going to set self aside, embrace living in the dark. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you really, really need to know at all times what's going on and why it's going on? Oh, pastor, if you could just tell me what God is doing here. Now, I'm in a situation, and if I could understand what he's doing, I could accept it better. To really follow Jesus, to really set self aside, see, it's self that says, I've got to know. I got to know because I'm still watching out for me. And this night might not be good for me. So I need to know what's going on. I don't want to live in the dark. And yet, see, anyone who gets to know God 
begins to understand that our Heavenly Father is mysteriously purposeful often. His purposes are not like one plus one equals two. We're not even sure what the one and the one is sometimes. We just see what's going on. We say, I don't know why this is going on. It's all right, don't have to. God knows what's going on. I'm in the dark, he's in the light. See, you've got to embrace that. It's called living by faith. God's ways are seldomly, immediately plain to all of us. So we need to lay aside our need to know everything, and we need to lay aside our need to agree and affirm everything. Hey, God's doing this, and I just want to know he's got my vote on it. I don't need to affirm him. That's not my role. I can't even make that judgment. So embrace living in the dark and be comfortable knowing that your Heavenly Father is light and he will shine the light on you as you need it and as it uh, can minister to you. Sometimes being in the dark is just how we build our faith. We trust him when we can't see. Well, that's exactly what faith is. Trusting him when we can't see. If we could see, we wouldn't need to believe or have faith. We would just know. So embrace living in the dark. It's one of the ways of getting yourself off the throne and the self that says, I got to know, I got to know, I got to be sure I understand. Third thing here, recognize, well, kind of said that, recognize that you no longer have a vote or even any authority. Self wants to be in charge. Self wants to feel important. Self wants to feel like at least I get to cast the deciding vote. Putting self aside says, I, I, don't, I no longer even have a vote and I don't even have any authority. God the Father is never going to say to me through his Holy Spirit, so what do you think, Mark? What should we do here? Give me your best take on this. After all, you're the pastor of the church. You know these people. You've studied the Bible at least a little bit. Uh, what do you think? He's never going to do that. Never going to do that. Even if I sometimes volunteer my help. He's going to say thank you, but, you know, I don't need your input on this. See, recognize this. Become confident in the Heavenly Father's profound wisdom. Accept the fact that you are not, nor do you need to be, the smartest person in the room. Every now and then, just go through the day, sit down somewhere, watch what's going on. You're in a church gathering like this. Just sit down and say to yourself, you know, I don't have a clue. And see what that feels like. I don't have a clue. Sit in your doctor's office as he's all dressed out with his white coat and his stethoscope and, and the plaques on the wall that says he, has a, he not only has a clue, he has the answer to everything. And just sit there and say, you know, in this situation, I don't have a clue. Heavenly Father, I just need you to guide me through it. I'm trusting your Holy Spirit to work through all the moving parts here. Him and his ego and his understanding, the way he looks at my test results and what conclusions he draws. I'm just going to trust your Holy Spirit to guide me right through that. And even if something turns out to be what somebody might call a botched job, I know your Holy Spirit going to work something good out of that. So I, I'm okay. I don't need a clue. You know, I have you. I don't need to be the smartest people, person in the room. I don't need to challenge everybody around me. I can just take me out of the equation and put Christ and my Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit right there at the center of things. Now, here's the point. Jesus modeled all of that as a human being himself. Jesus didn't even have an ugly, fallen, rebellious human nature. He had a flawless, sinless nature. But he found submission and restraint 
to be not only acceptable, but delightful. Laying aside self is a continual process. It takes us in a good direction. It walks us down the path that Jesus himself walked. Jesus who said, I can do nothing but what the Father you know, tells me to do. He's the Son of God. If he didn't have authority in himself to do whatever he wanted to do, why do we think we do? He's the Son of God. Submit to him. Submit to him. And when things rile up within us that seem kind of extreme, exercise restraint. Jesus did that all the time. He was the absolute opposite of the fallen sinful nature. And so in this process, it involves putting to death things that are unworthy of and detrimental to the godly calling you have received. And so it's like, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. And it's that putting to death responsibility that gives meaning to this next step in the process. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him, what? What's the next one? Take up his cross. How many of you have heard that talked about? How many of you have thought to myself, oh man, something terrible happens and you just got to trudge along and say, man, it's just my cross to bear. Just my cross to bear. You know, I'll bear it. God will give me grace. You know, it's all right. The world, the non-Christian world as well as the Christian world, when they hear about take up the cross, it's like lug along with you the thing that's so hard for you to deal with. Just lug it along. Take up your cross, man. You're dying on it all the time. It, it would kill you if it could. It's my burden to bear. I'm going to tell you this morning that is absolutely a wrong way of looking at this. If you have something you have to bear, physical, emotional, something you can't get away from, and it's just part of your life that makes your life difficult, don't say, I'm picking up my cross. Just say, I'm dealing with my thorn in the flesh. See, Paul had something like that, and he gave it a name. Had nothing to do with the cross. Just had to do with this life in this fallen world. He had, he had a difficulty. He asked God, pleaded with God to take away. This, he just called it a thorn in the flesh. Sometimes a thorn in the flesh is a person you're stuck with. Can't get away from them. And they annoy you. And they love to annoy you. And they keep doing it. And you say, God, could you just take them away? Like maybe to Florida. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And you say, I don't want to hear that. I'd rather have them gone than have grace. That's a thorn in the flesh. That's a situation you're dealing with. It might be within your own body, a situation you're dealing with. The Bible would call that, Paul would call that, a thorn in the flesh. It's troubling me. It's making it difficult for me to live my life and do my thing. But it is what it is. It's a, it's a physical or a, it's a life situation. But here's the thing it's not. It's not a cross to bear. Because the cross in the New Testament has a very special meaning. And we don't want to fog it up or mess it up and in the eyes of the unbeliever actually get past the whole truth of, of what it represents and what it's about. So here, take up his cross. Now, let me ask you this. Right off the bat, we've just talked about there's some things we might need to put to death in our life. In the process of taking self off the throne, we might just have to be done with some stuff. Put it to death. If we are going to be continually involved in putting things to death, how handy is it to have a cross always available? See, if there's going to be things in my life that the Spirit of God would say, you need to put that to death, you might say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, put them on the cross. Crosses are instruments of death. I would say that'd be very handy to have. To always have a cross with me at all times that when something comes up that I need to put to death, I'm glad I have a device of death with me. 
So in a sense, Jesus said it this way. We could understand it this way. Pick up that cross and carry it with you wherever you go. You never know when you're going to need to use it. So don't ever be without it. Deny yourself. That's the first big step. Get yourself out of the way and then take up your cross, your cross, and then come following me. That means you're bringing the cross with you as you follow me. See, Jesus wasn't talking about something burdensome, like it's my cross to bear. Jesus was talking about the cross as something to use in your spiritual warfare. You could hear him say, take it up. Keep it handy. You will need to use it often. You see, some aspect of your old sinful nature, or some aspect of this world's allure, or some aspect of Satan's sales pitch, or some grievous action of yours in the past, is regularly needing to be nailed to the cross. So make sure you never quit carrying the cross. And I would just add, and be sure to carry a bunch of nails with you. Make sure you never have something you need to nail to the cross and you run out of nails. So here's a few ways. thought I'd just look through the scripture a little bit, some of Paul's writings, and see how does he apply this cross theme to the Christian life? Now, he applies the cross theme to to the death of Christ, the salvation and what happened on the cross, but he also applies it in this way where Jesus says, pick up your cross. He didn't say, carry mine. He said, you pick up your cross. So here's some things. We'd say, use the cross. This is the one you're carrying with you. A lot of people wear a cross around their neck. Let that be symbolic to you. So, okay, whenever I need to do that, I'm just going to touch this one and remind myself of what I need to do. Use the cross when confronted with the world system of thought and with our own personal misdeeds. Here's what Paul says, Galatians chapter 6, 14. The world is crucified to me. See, you can't be crucified without a cross coming into play. He says, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. This cross has brought about the death of both of us. The world system with all of its ungodly values and me, that is myself, that would just put myself ahead of God. And then Romans 8.13, Paul says, put to death... Now, if we're putting this together, Jesus gave us the instrument of death, and the Apostle Paul is saying, use it, put to death the misdeeds of the body. I know none of us have used our bodies in any improper way, probably in years. But in case anybody has, the misdeeds of the body, Doing stuff that just isn't really right. Uh, Doing things that doesn't make our body more completely the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just misusing our bodies, whatever that might be. Sometimes even bad behaviors come into account there. Paul says those misdeeds that he's just assuming are going to be part of our life from time to time, put them to death. Use our phrase today, nail them to the cross. You see, you can nail the entire worldly way of thinking to the cross. And you can tell yourself, never again will you think that way. Remember the three things we said made up the world? Materialism, stuff is what matters. Personalism, I am what matters. Temporalism, this moment right now is all that matters. That kind of makes up world thinking. Paul says, you might have nailed that to the cross one time, told yourself you're never going to think that way again. You can nail to the cross your entire record of sinful deeds and tell yourself that you are never going to behave like that again. And as you hold high this cross, see, this cross in your mind testifies to both of those things. I have died to the world. 
I have crucified the world on this cross. It has the power to free me from that. This cross has the power to overcome the regret and the, and the dismay over even things I've done in the past. It just nailed there. You see, this cross can be both your record and your testimony of newness. Just look at the cross and see what's, what's on there. Yes, there was a time Mark did that, and he did that, and he did that. And there was a time that he was so immersed in the world's thinking. He didn't even know it was worldly. He thought it was godly. And then he discovered, and that had to get nailed here. And there's that one, and there's that one, and there's that one. And that cross now becomes my testimony, my record. And there's something else here. The accusations of the law. Here Paul says in Colossians 2.14, He, that is God the Father, took it away. It is the written code that stood against us. The law, the thou shalt nots. He took that away, nailing it to the cross. Paul uses that language. See, let the devil deliver you a barrage of accusations. Let the self-righteous bean counters of the world announce every expectation you have failed to meet. Let the law itself cry out, you violated me. Just hold up your cross and see where the Father himself has nailed every one of those accusations. And hear the Father say to you, here's where those accusations have died. They have no power over you anymore. Last one I'd share. Use the cross when confronted with hostility or animosity between believers. Paul says in Ephesians 2.16, speaking of Jesus, his, that is Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new man out of the two. The two being the Jews and the Gentiles, just natural adversaries and tensions between them. Out of those two groups of people, where the whole world was divided into Jews or non-Jews, Gentiles, out of the whole world and those two groups of people, Jesus is fashioning in himself one brand new human being. A person that rises above being Jew or Gentile, being Greek or Roman, being American or something else. One new kind of person. Thus it says making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Now hear this. By which. So here's Jesus using the cross for something. By which he put to death their hostility. See he's not talking about paying for our sins there. He's talking about, here's a Christian brother who's a Jewish, raised Jewish. Here's a Christian brother who's been raised Gentile. And and they just naturally suspect each other and have questions about each other. The Jew doesn't believe the Gentile really can be saved. And the Gentile doesn't really believe the Jew is fully trusting in Christ. He's relying upon his own relationship to Abraham to get him to heaven. And they have hostility, perhaps, and suspicion of each other. And Jesus takes all that hostility and he nailed it to the cross and said it's done no more of that no more looking at a fellow believer and finding the thing about them that's different that makes you superior no more looking at a fellow believer and finding the thing that irritates you and so you sit on one side of the church while they sit on the other side None of you are doing that, are you? You're just sitting where you're sitting because you're creatures of habit, right? The first Sunday you came here, this is where you sat. And the second Sunday, it's like, hey, I already have a seat. And you've been there for 10 years. But see, there's some where Christians, you know, they look at each other and there's hostility there. How could they belong to that political party and call themselves a Christian? Jesus says all that stuff needs to be nailed to the cross. And if any of it is in your own heart, we need to nail it to our own personal cross 
that we're carrying and say, I, that's got to be dead in my life. It's got to be put to death. That's not, that's not honoring to Christ. That's not right. That, that creates tension in the body rather than harmony in the body. We better just nail that to the cross. Let any unworthy, unlovely feeling die as you nail it there. Oh, what a handy, what a necessary, what a potent thing is the cross that Christ would have each of us take up. Our own cross, our own tool of destruction for the things that need to be destroyed in our lives. Instead of just saying, I'm never going to do that anymore, picture to yourself, I'm I'm going to nail that to the cross, and the next time something like that stirs in you, say, wait a minute, I I already dealt with that. That's not part of my life. That is dead to me. In fact, right here, look, in my mind's eye, I can see it's nailed to the cross. Jealousy of whatever I want to call it, there, there it is. Nailed to the cross that I'm carrying around with me all the time so I don't forget. So be sure you have the cross with you at all times. When you leave the house tomorrow morning, just your little check say, do I have my cross? Because I may encounter some things today I need to nail to it. And I don't want to have to run home to get it. Because chances are I'll forget what it is by the time I get home. So just carry it with you and say that too, that too. It's not right. It's sinful. It's not helpful. It's not honoring to God. But it's in me. I need to just put it on the cross and let it wither and die. Now, just one quick warning as we close to a close here from the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, these words, many, many people in the world live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about people who believe in the Lord, but he says they're living like they're enemies of the cross. Well, not too many Christians actually have an understanding of the cross that we're talking about this morning. And so they don't even know anything about it. Paul says, and the reason is their mind is on earthly things. They're really caught up in in the things of this earth and they're not really focused upon heavenly things of which this ministry that the cross provides for us is, is part of heavenly things, spiritual things. It was a problem already in Paul's day. Certainly a problem in our own day. You see, to fail to preach the cross as part of the Christian life is to become its enemy. To fail to preach the cross as part of the Christian life is to empty the Christian life of a certain amount of passion and purpose. To fail to preach the cross as part of the Christian life is to deny the Savior who died on his cross so that you and I can take up ours. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. Take up your cross, says Jesus to every one of us. So in the process of choosing to come after Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. And thirdly and finally... Jesus just says, if anyone would come after me, let him then follow me. You can't come after me unless you, you know, get moving, because pretty soon I'm going to be out of sight. So you're going to have to follow, and follow close after him. Here's just a couple of thoughts I have. Followers of Jesus recognize and confess Jesus as Lord and Master. Peter said, Luke 18, 28, Peter said to him, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. And they had. This commitment to leave all and follow Christ comes rather easily once self has been denied. Until self is dealt with, nobody wants to leave anything to follow anybody. Because it's all about you. But once self has been denied, this commitment can come pretty easily. You see, once Peter had left his nets, 
once Peter had determined that he was no longer a fisherman, there was a great void in his life. Once we deny self, there's a great void in our life. The spot once filled by self was in need of filling and standing right there in front of Peter was the very one who could fill it, Jesus Christ. So you leave your nets, you leave yourself, your own sense of who you are and what you are and why you are in the boat with them and you turn around and only for a second do you feel that emptiness of what am I going to do now? Who am I now? Well, there he is. That's who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What do I do? I follow him wherever he leads. I don't even have to ask him all about it ahead of time. I'm going to trust him and follow him. And he, he will be my Lord and my Savior. Peter said, Lord, Lord, we have left all and followed you. He was affirming, you are indeed our Lord and our Savior. So get in the habit of saying that every single day. Lord, I have left all to follow you. You are my Lord and Savior. You are my Lord and Master. Secondly, followers of Jesus commit his words, his teachings to memory. How many of you, your memory is as sharp as ever? You know how many Bible verses I have run through my mind and I don't have a clue where they are? The Apostle Paul is my patron saint of biblical memory. In some of his letters, Paul says, somewhere it says. I love that. Somewhere it says. Paul's Paul's Bible didn't have chapters and verses in it. I think that was an invention of the evil one. You know, so that every verse has a chapter and a verse instead of just words. So frequently I find myself saying, or I find the Holy Spirit saying to me when I'm preparing a message and a a verse comes to mind, it's like the Holy Spirit says, remember Mark somewhere it says? I'm glad I have a concordance. It's on the computer. And I'll say, yeah, I know that verse. Absolutely, that would work perfectly here. But the people will want to know where it comes from. So, get on the computer. Okay, now you put in a couple of words, and there it is. Well, right here. You know, there it is. Luke 18, 28. Lord, we've followed, left all. Commit Jesus' words and teachings to memory. That just means the content of his words have in your heart. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. 1 John 2.24 we read, John says at the end of his life, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. These are the teachings of Jesus. Let them remain in you. And so we've said often during these past months, read the red letters. Read them and read them and read them. They are the words of the one you follow. They are the words toward which the Holy Spirit, our earthly companion, has been sent to direct your attention. They are the words that draw you into Christ's own heart. Read them. Read them until they're second nature to you. So you find yourself saying to yourself and to others, you know, it's like the Lord said. It's like Jesus said. And then you quote him. You may even paraphrase him. But it's like these are his words. The thoughts that came from him. And somebody says, well, where is that? Well, maybe you'll remember and maybe you won't. There's other devices to use with that. But just be sure that the words of Christ are are being stored up in, in your heart. That they remain in you. And then thirdly, and finally, followers of Jesus then put those words into practice. Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. That is the series key verse for this entire set of messages. Red letter living, putting the teachings of Jesus into practice. And that's the key. Build your life upon those and your life will become rock solid. So here's our final thought. Though salvation is truly a gift, 
And we affirm that again and again and again. Salvation is a gift of God. It comes by grace. Don't have to do anything to earn it, to merit it. It's a gift from God. That is the gift part. The fullness of the Christian life is not. Jesus is filled with teachings on how to gain the abundant life. We have three of them right here today. Deny yourself. If you're going to know the fullness of the Christian life, got to done that. Got to do that. You got to take up your cross. You got to be able to deal with the stuff as it comes along and get rid of it as fast as it shows its head. And then thirdly, you need to consciously follow him. Those are things to do. That's the narrow road. That's getting down toward the fullness of life. So many people profess and possibly are born again, saved from their sins, thanks to the grace of God and the gift of salvation. But they're living miserable lives because they're not following Jesus. They're not doing the things that Jesus said are actually the requirements to enjoy that kind of life. They're saved, hopefully. Only God knows anybody's heart. But they're not really enjoying this life that the Holy Spirit desires to walk them into. And so there's other things, but today we look at three, you know, things that are key parts of uh, enjoying that life. Jesus laid down a challenging requirement for those who would wish to actually follow him. See, a lot of people believe in Jesus, but they aren't following him. They've gone through that narrow gate and sat down, thankful that they're saved. And meanwhile, Jesus just gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as he's heading down the path that uh, we're to follow until they don't see him at all. They just get caught up with their own life all over again. But thankful that Jesus died for them. Thankful that God forgave them of their sins. But they're to be followers, to be in fellowship with the Spirit, requires them actually entering in. And do these things. We just say it's a requirement like no other. Well, thank you for your time today. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, this is a, a huge, big subject. We know that. But Father, thank you that there's such a thing as a functional cross. A cross that, that is an instrument of death that belongs to me so that I can put to death the things that need to be dealt with. Father, help us to become active in following Jesus, denying self every day, putting Christ at the core, the center of our life, and then dealing with things that come up that are displeasing to you, and literally, in our minds, nailing them to that cross that can put them to death. And then, Father, to follow Jesus with all, all the joy and enthusiasm of, of just walking with him, with the spirit that he gave to just draw us close to him. We thank you for this, this instruction, these words of Jesus. May they remain, as John say, may they remain within us. For we ask it for his sake. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.